I want you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Matthew, chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 14. Matthew 9, 14 down to 17. And what I'm considering tonight is how we need a new revival and reform movement. Verse 14 of Matthew 9. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. This series has been called Revival Now and we've been considering the type of revival that we need for our times. We don't need the revival that happened in history, any one of them, for now. We need a revival that is fit for our conditions and meets our specific needs. And so in that vein, I've been looking each night at, first of all, the first evening, we need a new Jesus movement. We need a movement of the Spirit of God that is focused primarily on the person of Christ. That's all about him. And then we saw the next week, we need a new holiness movement. And we've all, off, or sorry, a new prayer movement. Um, holiness movement came the third week. We need to gather together in prayer and we've seen that uh, prayer always precedes a move of God but it often moves people into repentance and into the holiness, uh, a new holiness movement and what that really means, what true holiness is and what false holiness is. And then we saw in our fourth week um, we need a new word and spirit movement and I was tempted to spend a week on the Bible and a week on the Holy Spirit but in fact I thought to myself, and with the Spirit's leading, I believe, no, these two must come together. The problem has been they've been divided for so long in the church, and they need to come together. We need a word and spirit movement. 100% word, 100% spirit. And then we saw, and this was a challenging week, at the beginning of our, our new series, if you like, the second half, uh, week six, was we need a new unity movement. And what false unity is, and what true unity is. Then we saw we need a new Christ-like movement, a move of the Spirit, a revival, a renewal in the church ought to look like Jesus. Um, and then we saw last week that we need a new disciple-making movement. But tonight we're looking at this. We need a new revival and reform movement. Now, I didn't plan the series out like this. There's a number of things that when Mitch asked me to do this, I jotted down initially, and we covered some of those. But some of these other subjects were molded by the Holy Spirit and shaped as we have proceeded along. And tonight is like that. Um, I've come to the conclusion that we need a new reformation in the church. 
We need revival, yes, but we need reformation also. And revival and reformation are not the same. You can have one without the other. You can have a revival, but the structures of the church stay the same. Or you can have a reformation. And we see sometimes some of the revivals that are called revivals, so-called in the Old Testament, were, were usually just reformations, a reforming of the structure of the people of God made by the king or something along those lines. But there wasn't always that renewal of heart, that change and dynamic of transformation that we need in revival. So you can have a revival and not reformation. You can have reformation without revival. And in fact, the Protestant Reformation actually um, wasn't entirely a revival or renewal in the church. And it's important to understand that. Now, there was an awakening as far as the Word of God was rediscovered, translated into people's language, and the gospel of, of justification by faith alone in Christ was rediscovered to the church. And that had a dynamic impact upon um, salvation, regeneration, being born again, and uh, all the myths of the church were debunked. But I want you to understand that there was also elements to the Reformation that were not Holy Spirit-driven and were purely political. So you got whole swathes of Germany, for instance, converting from being Catholic to Protestant purely because the prince of that region turned to be a Protestant. You understand? And that happened across Europe. Look at Henry VIII. I'm not going to, to, to history lesson on that, but you know why he turned from being a Catholic was mainly to do with his moral situation and he wanted a divorce. And so God can move through all those things, and he did do, but you've got to understand that Reformation and Revival are not the same. And even when it, you go further back to the time of Constantine, the, the Roman emperor, in the 4th century, he made an edict called the Edict of Tolerance, 313 AD. And basically, he was uh, legalizing Christianity in the empire. And he, he claimed to have a, something of a conversion. And he, he declared Christianity to be the, the religion of the empire. And we're not going to the, the, the good and the ill of that. But the fact remains that many people converted to Christianity because of empire and because it was advantageous now to be a Christian because the emperor was one, supposedly. Understand? And so we've got to understand the difference between revival and reformation, but, but reformation is often necessary. And this is the reason why I believe in Matthew chapter 9, if a wineskin is not fit for the new wine that God is pouring out from heaven, the new wine will be lost. And I want to suggest that if there isn't sufficient reformation in the church, that renewal can be lost. And during many of the revivals of history, there appears to be a pattern that actually God moved outside the realms of the recognized or established churches. He, he seemed to do something outside the churches that he couldn't do inside the church in order that the broader church should benefit from it. Now, to use the example of the Protestant Reformation again, out of it, even though um, these five solas were only put together really in the 20th century, you may have heard of the five solas that were developed to re uh, reflect some of the doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation. So there was sola gratia, grace alone, 
sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone, and uh, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so the truths of the Reformation are reflected in that, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And those are quite well known. However, what's lesser known is that in 1947, a Reformed scholar by the name of Karl Barth popularized a statement that is allegedly derived from something St. Augustine said, it goes like this, Ecclesia Semper Reformanda, uh, Reformanda Est. And it basically means the church must always be reformed or the church must always be reforming. It refers to the conviction of certain reformed theologians that the church must continually be re-examining herself in order to maintain its purity of doctrine and practice. Let me just say, I'm not speaking about some kind of so-called progressive Christianity that is in vogue today, that is effectively modern liberalism, that's dispensing of the fundamentals of the truth of the faith just because it's popular in today's culture. I'm not talking about that. On the contrary, I'm talking about how we can be more biblical and more resemble New Testament original Christianity. And so rather than some modern progression, I'm talking about more of a positive regression where we go back positively to primitive and pure Christianity as we see it in the Acts of the Apostles. That's devoid of human appendages uh, and, and traditions that inhibit God's new thing. Sometimes I've been asked the question, and it certainly has been asked when we consider the subject of revival many times, why do revivals stop? And there are many answers to that question. But perhaps one one reason revival can stop is because the wineskins, the structures of the church at the time, were not fit for purpose to preserve and then to further dispense with longevity to succeeding generations the new wine that God was pouring out from heaven. And because the wineskins so often are not fit for purpose, what God pours out is often spilt onto the ground and is lost because the containers are inadequate. So what I'm suggesting tonight, I believe inspired by God, is that we today, if we want to preserve what I believe God intends to pour out, we must strip back the non-essentials from the church to get to the heartbeat of what the church really is. Now we need the Spirit's help and grace to do this, and it may well be that we need the renewal and revival before the Reformation, For a cardiac surgeon to get to the heart, what does he have to do? He has to cut through the flesh. He has to cut through the muscle. He has to break through the ribcage in order to find the heart. And if the true church 
is playing hide and seek in our age, we must search for her and find her again. The true church. I believe one of the gifts of the pandemic, and that's perhaps a strange statement, but one of the gifts of the pandemic to the church is it has caused to force her to reconsider her wineskin. Or at least I think that has been the divine objective. I'm not saying God caused the pandemic, but that is something that I believe he is using it to do, to cause the church to ask questions about her structures. But sadly, I'm not sure that the church is getting the memo and most just can't wait to get back to the way things were. And yet God, I believe, is speaking prophetically to what is going on in our age. God is saying to the church, I want to change you. God has said that down through the annals of history before. And most of the time, the church doesn't hear. And he has to move outside the established church to get it happening. But I believe if ever there was a text that summarizes the mind of God to the church in what is going on in our world today, it's Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. You can just listen to it if you wish. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of that which can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me just recap on that for a moment. The things that can be shaken when God shakes up things are the things which are created. And it's the created things in the church right now that are being shaken. And they need to be shaken. Because they need to go. Because we need to receive the kingdom that cannot be shaken. These verses, I believe, are for this cultural moment in the church and in society. The church needs to change. The church needs reformation. The only one who doesn't need to change is God. I mean, that's newsflash for a lot of people, especially Christians, you know, who, who never change. You know, I, and I've changed a lot over the years and I've got into trouble for that. But I, I really question those who never change. I mean, the Lord said in Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord who changes not. And unless you're the Lord, you need to be changing in some way because growth means change. And whatever doesn't change dies. And so when you strip back even the most modern churches, you find basically that they are the same as the established and old ones. Most of them. 
modern or tradition, in general, are same in structure, in hierarchy, and the same problems exist within them. In Jesus' time, it was the old wineskins of the religious forms of Judaism that were bursting under the pressure of the exuberance of the new wine that Messiah was bringing in the kingdom of heaven. That's why he gave this parable that we read together. This is often true of movements, Christian movements, Christian denominations, Christian organizations, and actually it's true of Christian groups that have been used in revival and have grown out of revival. John White put it like this, the most significant movements start by being a little wild, settled down to respectable middle age, and then rejoicing in their respectability, relax into a creeping death. And very often it's the organizations that saw revival in their history. Let's face it, most movements or denominations came out of some kind of a move of God. It's often they who are expecting or even requiring God to do it the same as he did before. Do it again. And that itself can be a hindrance. And and it's maybe even such groups that will oppose God's new thing because it doesn't look like what they knew it to be before in their history. And listen, whenever we think we can second guess God, I believe he scraps the blueprint and he's the God of ultimate creation and ultimate variety, isn't he? And God just starts over again, and he can start over again with a new model, he can start over again with a new people, he can start over again with anything and anyone, because he's God, he's the God of revival. And I started off this series in a kind of way, I didn't realize I was doing it, in the opening of the building, uh, you know, for Crown Jesus purposes way back, was it October? And I talked about Isaiah and how in Isaiah's day, this truth was there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord, Isaiah says. So this great king had been with them many, many years and they'd started to put their faith and dependence in this guy. When he died, they were in despair. But it was only when the old died that he got his eyes on the the risen, exalted Lord Jesus, because that's exactly who Jesus says it, it, it is, that he sees Jesus in all his glory. But the old had to die. And it's the same in Messiah's day. You know, the Jews were so schooled in Holy Scripture, and yet when Messiah turned up, when God and flesh came among them, they didn't recognize him. And they were all about laws, not lives. All about rules, not relationship. But they missed their Messiah. And they effectively crucified him. Those who were waiting on a work of God, who believed they had the word of God, missed God's new thing. And it's the same on the day of Pentecost. Because in Acts chapter 2, we see that the Holy Spirit comes and flushes the disciples out of the upper room and into the public square, and people think they are mad because they're babbling in tongues, and they can't be drunk, which is only 9 o'clock in the morning. But if you look at the language in Acts chapter 2, there's words like, people were confused, they marveled, they mocked, they asked questions. What is this? 
And it took Peter to stand up and say, quoting Joel chapter 2, this is that which the prophet spoke. This is that. But they missed it. And then when we come into the the day of Gentile acceptance, and I touched on this a couple of weeks ago, where in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, you get Cornelius and his household coming to faith in Christ. And this was such a mind blower, because up to that point, the church had been Jewish. It had been exclusively a Jewish sect. But now these Gentiles were believing and receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Spirit. This was a challenge. It was pushing their boundaries. It was a new thing. And we even, and it's staggering when you consider that Peter was the instrument used to open up the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, and yet it was Peter that had a problem eating with Gentiles, and Paul has to rebuke him. He talks about that in Galatians. This prejudice was still ingrained in him. He struggled with God's new thing. And so very often things have to die. Things have to move. Things have to change and develop to accommodate the river of God. But the problem is we won't let them die. We're trying to perform mouth to mouth on the things in the church that God wants to perform a funeral for. He wants them dead and buried and over. He wants to move on. The river of God. Have you ever considered how rivers change landscapes? They do. Rivers erode banks. Rivers meander into new territory. Rivers can carry great boulders and rocks. And those boulders and rocks, when they're carried along by the the speed, the volume of the water, they dredge out the, the depth of the river deeper and deeper and therefore increasing the capacity of the water to flow. And the river of God, I believe, is coming. I believe in measure it is always flowing from beneath the throne of God. But I believe God wants to send a deluge in a great revival and awakening from heaven. But we've got to allow the river of God to flow in his purposes. And that might mean removing things. I preached along these lines before. And people actually complained when I talked about letting the old thing die and the new thing come People said, even years after, but he didn't tell us what we needed to change. He didn't tell us what we needed to stop and what we needed to start. He didn't tell us what specifically needed to die and what we needed to do differently. That's not my job. That's not my job. And it might be something different for for you that it is for you. You understand? For one church that it is for another My message is simply this. Whatever the specifics are, we all today need to acquiesce to the Spirit of God. Do you know what that word acquiesce means? 
You look it up in the dictionary. It means to accept something reluctantly, but without protest. So we're holding on to something that we have a love relationship with, whether it's a tradition or a structure, some kind of form, but it's an obstacle in the way of God's river. And we're reluctant to let go, but we're not going to protest because we know it needs to go. So another word would be to yield, to submit, to give way. To acquiesce to the Spirit's lead. I have to tell you this, and I hope I'm not unnecessarily offending you, but if you think the Holy Spirit leads our churches today, you're greatly deceived. Not all of them, but most of them are being led by human ingenuity, by tradition, by man's wisdom. Much that goes on in the church today is based on human intellect, ability, and empty tradition. And Jesus said in, in Mark chapter seven thirteen, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. And we're very good at calling upon the individual Christian to lay down their idols. But it's time for the church to lay down her idols. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. You know, it's time for the church to decide to do that. Albert Einstein, you may have heard his theory of insanity, have you? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. It doesn't work. You need to change what you're doing if you want different results. Thomas Jefferson put it another way. If you want something you've never had, you must be willing to do something you've never done. Change. And let's face it, folks. What does that word repent mean? Other than change. It literally means, in one form, metanoia, changing your mind. When was the last time as a Christian you changed your mind about something? You changed your heart, you changed your direction. We are meant to be the repentant people. And the the inference is, as we turn away from our own ways and our own thoughts, we're turning to God to seek him for fresh wind and fresh fire. When are we going to recognize that we're bankrupt, that our ideas don't float? Now, I'm not giving you specifics. I have my own ideas of the things that need to change. But will you ask the Holy Spirit, if you're a leader in the church or if you're somehow involved, you're certainly many of you involved in a parachurch ministry, but we're all connected to, we're all the church anyway because the church is you. How do we need to change? What needs to change? And I'll be accused, I'm sure, of being a a rabble-rouser and an upsetter and all the rest, but I don't care. Because desperate times require desperate measures. And it was Vance Havner who said, Sunday morning Christianity is the greatest hindrance to a true revival. 
He said that somewhere around the 40s or the 50s. 1940s, 50s. Sunday morning Christianity. What's he talking about? He's talking about our habits and our rituals and our traditions and our, our programs. They used to be called order of services and now they're called programs or they're called sets. But it's the same thing. And I'm not despising them. I'm just saying the Holy Spirit wants to get in. Jesus wants his church back. It was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones who tongue-in-cheek once cried, fancy upsetting the clock like mechanical perfection of a great service with an outpouring of the Spirit. The thing is unthinkable. But that's what we need. I talked a few weeks ago about the gentleness of Jesus, but he, he was also the disruptive Messiah, wasn't he? He did, perhaps twice, upend the, the temple tables. He didn't use any violence against people, but he certainly drove the animals because the zeal of God's house had eaten him up. The fear of the Lord had taken hold of him and it was premeditated. It wasn't explosive, uncontrollable anger. He, he spent the whole night meditating over it. But he is still the disruptive Messiah. And wherever he comes, there is upheaval. <laughs> well, revival. Give us a revival. We want revival. What the church needs is revival. What if, what, going back to last week, what if revival comes in the form of persecution? No, no, we want a prosperity revival. What if it's another P? persecution I happen to think that may be more the flavour of how it's coming that's certainly how it come, came in China that's how it came in Iran what we talked about last week that's how it's coming in most of the world he is the disruptive messiah and so we become so protestant in regards to our liberties our Christian values and, and we're shouting and ranting and raving about it through various means, law and politics and lobbying and all the rest. And I'm not against that. But what if actually God is on the move in a different way than we ever considered? Simeon said of the baby Jesus that he would be a sign spoken against so that the thoughts and intents of many hearts are revealed. And revival is often a sign spoken against because there's a serious shaking when the Lord turns up in the church and he demands room to maneuver. We need to give him the room. I want you to notice in that verse that we read, verse 17, as I close, Jesus doesn't just say that the wine is spilled. You notice that? Verse 17, they nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled. But he also says, and the wineskins are ruined. The old wineskins are ruined. So not only is the wine speaking of 
the new wine of God's blessing and life flowing from heaven, it falls to the ground and is wasted. It's not preserved. But the old wineskins cannot contain the vibrant life, the fermentation of the life of God, and they burst and they are ruined. What does that mean? It means that movements, denominations, churches that don't get with God's program will get left behind. I'm not saying I know everything about what God's program is. Far from it. But I know this much. I don't want to be left behind. So whatever needs to go can go. As long as I have Jesus and his kingdom and as long as it's him I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what people think. And that's where we need to get individually but that's what we, where we need to get corporately. That's where our churches need to get. That we're so desperate. That we'll remove anything. We'll change anything. To give God room. Let's pray. Let's take a moment before... Just in the quietness before there's any music or singing or any prayer for anyone just yet. Just in the silence. And I know this is a weighty word and I don't find it easy delivering it, but I have to bring you what God, I believe, has given me. What does this mean for us? Well, certainly... The first thing you can do is pray. Pray that our church leaders, our church bodies, our church movements, groups, denominations, and so on, and the independent, more modern groups, or whatever they might be, they will begin to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And that they will begin to hear prophetically what God's blueprint is now what God is wanting to do, that they would recognize that there has been a shaking and what that means and how to interpret that and what to do about it. And if you're in a position of church leadership, that you start talking about that. You start not only praying, but you talk with your leaders about that. We start even as, even if you're not in leadership as Christians, we start talking about this. What, what do you think's getting in the way? And I'm not talking about being critical or slanders, we don't want that. But we have to be real. We have to be a people that's listening to the Lord and being discerning. So Lord, I just pray for this old building and every building like it where a church has met. I pray for every denomination, every Christian expression in our land. 
I pray for every free church independent group, every organization, every parachurch group, every missionary movement. Oh God. Oh God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us when we think we know how to do it all. Forgive us when we just go through the motions of how it was done before. Forgive us when we second guess how you should do it today. Lord, the answer is we really don't have a clue, but we know that we need you to move. Help us to get back to primitive Christianity. Help us to get back to the apostolic models. Lord, help us to get back to what your word says. Where everyone is a saint. And everyone is a disciple. And everyone is an equal. Male and female, bond or free, Jew, Gentile. And where there's no hierarchies pulling ranks. There's no privilege. There's no wielding of power. There's no financial drivenness there's no political besmirchment but where the gifts of Christ apostle, prophet, pastor teacher, evangelist are freely expressed as his personhood in the church in gifts not positions or titles but in gifts of these people who move under these anointings where the gifts of the Holy Spirit are being manifested in power, where the fruit of the Spirit are manifesting the personality of Jesus, where the vicar of Christ on the earth, the Holy Spirit of the living God, is representing the Godhead now, and people see him in our lives, in our love, and in our fruit. Oh God, arise, you and the ark of your strength, into your dwelling place that we may be again a spiritual house a holy people a temple for you to possess that men and women might say God dwells among his people again Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, even so, come 